Hi guys, thank you for joining your UNA series podcast today. I'm so happy to have Dr. Federica Amati again, because we did one podcast together on the vaginal microbiome, which is sounds a bit niche, but it's not actually. And it's really very interesting for everyone and every woman. Um, please go on and, and check this one out on the UNA series podcast um, in Spotify, for example, you'll find him there. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for being here again. So for the ones who don't know you, Dr. Federica Amati is, um, I'm going to take her words here. She's a chronic academic. <laughs> she has a PhD in clinical medicine research, uh, specialized in nutrition, in pharmacology, public health specialists. I could go on and on. Basically, you know everything. <laughs> but today we're going to speak about menopause because this is a subject that you see a lot in clinic and it's also a subject that I deal a lot with in my clinic as an osteopath because I focused for a while on women's health which is absolutely fascinating. So may we start just by reminding ourselves a bit about what menopause or maybe I should say perimenopause as well which is a word that's coming around and people are hearing just to make sure we know what we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's great the menopause is getting so much more attention now. And it's great that you're doing this as well, very fast for your audience. Um, but the technically, a woman is menopausal if she hasn't had a cycle or a period in a year. Prior to that, when cycles become more irregular and estrogen and progesterone levels are dropping, that is called the perimenopause. And that can last for up to six years. Typically, it's less than that, but it can last for up to six years. And there's a distinction to be made between menopause seen in women around the age of 51, which is the average in the UK and the US. Then there is early onset menopause, which can happen in women under the age of 40 or sometimes under the age of 30. Rarer. Yes, we're happen. seeing this quite a lot. Maybe it's also we know more about it, it seems, but it's it's quite frequent. Yeah, well, I mean, it's. Right. Since we are in the definitions right now, could we uh, quickly, so you spoke about oestrogen and progesterone, just so people know, um, I know that a lot of people know about this, but they are the two sexual female hormones. Men also have some, but in a very small, small amount, like female have testosterone, for example. Um, but these are the two hormones that kind of fluctuate during the monthly cycle. Uh, in response to two other hormones that you know as well, and most people that come from the hypothesis, and this is FLH and FSH. Now, what's important here to, for people to know is that it seems that there's a drop of all that 
when you come into perimenopause and eventually into menopause. Is that right? That's right. The only one that is actually that shoots up during the perimenopause trying to, to stimulate uh, ovulation as FSH. So follicle stimulating hormone in perimenopausal women is like through the roof um, as it's trying to stimulate an ovulation, but there's no eggs left. There's no response. Exactly. Right. So okay. the FSH is the only one that really peaks at the beginning. And then once there's no ovulation, as exactly as you said, we see estrogen and progesterone dropping. And that sort of drop can be quite gradual in perimenopause, or it can be quite straight down. Um, and then once the those um, hormones have reached like the bottom, if you will, they'll stay down. So estrogen and progesterone basically go right down in menopausal women. And it's those, it's a lack of estrogen, especially that causes a lot of the symptoms that are associated with the menopause. So which are the symptoms? <laughs> so there's, you know, there, it's so individual. There's so many symptoms. It really varies. As you can, you can, any woman you speak to who has premenstrual tension or who suffers with menstrual symptoms, it varies from woman to woman. And that's exactly the same with pregnancy, it varies from woman to woman. Same with, same with um, the menopause, but there are some that are like, most reported on so for instance the, everyone knows about the hot sweats the hot flushes and then there's also um, vaginal dryness is one of the ones that women find the most uncomfortable and can be really debilitating because it, it can make things like sitting or riding a bicycle unpleasant um and, and sex as well yeah and of course painful sex which is not ideal um and then there's headaches so it does increase the likelihood of headaches if you're a migraine sufferer you can find that it like elevates migraine um, and it also affects how women put on weight. So, you know, women will report having more weight put on around their bellies. Um, they'll find it slightly harder to lose weight. And then on a sort of more physiological level, which I'm sure you'll know more than me about, it's the bone density changes and you can have, it can actually suffer with bone pain and muscle pain from these changes. Um, so there's a real wide variety of symptoms. And then there's some women who don't report many symptoms. They just report losing their cycle. So it really varies. Do you, two questions here that come to mind that also I've, I've been asked quite a few times. Do you know of any kind of hereditary kind of patterns through menopause? Because we, we do see some in pregnancies, you know, it, it's kind of there. Do you, do you see that as well? So yeah, so in the, certainly the age of onset, so if you're from a family where your mother, your grandmother, your auntie, your sister has had an early onset menopause, you're more likely to have the same. So that's certainly something to look out for. And it's something to discuss with fertility, your fertility doctor, um, if you're worried that you might be in that category and you might want to consider your options for later in life. In terms of the actual symptoms, yes and no. I think there's there is some heritability to how sensitive you are to hormones generally, as we discussed. Um, but there's a lot of lifestyle factors that can help attenuate the symptoms. So, of course, lifestyle factors are often also hereditary, because if you've grown up in a family that has certain dietary patterns, more often than not, you're likely to adopt them. We're going to go into this very soon, I'm sure. Uh, a last little question about ethnicities. Do we know, because I've read a paper recently, and I don't know if you've seen this, that, um, yeah, Afro-Americans, for example, tend to be perimenopausal 1.5 to two years before Caucasian women. Um, and the cause in that paper anyway was a lot was what they call allostatic stress, so the environmental stresses that we can do 
think about work, we can think about social stresses, we can think about financial stresses. And it's true that there is a discrepancy in this world, for sure, between Caucasian and, and Asian and Afro-Americans, for example. So we can think about that. But it's interesting. Do you think there is, and that would be a genetic trait, I guess, if so? So it's interesting that you asked me this because I've done a lot of work on um, sort of ethnic disparities in health. So, and actually, generally speaking, there are very few traits that are actually purely genetic in terms of there are certain things, sickle cell anemia, there are certain very strong hereditary trait genetic diseases. But when it comes to things like early onset of puberty, earlier onset of uh, menopause, and all these changes which are seen in high proportions of non-white people, essentially, the consensus in public health is that it's much more to do with socioeconomic stresses than it is to do with genetics. So as you know, you know, genetics is a music sheet for our lives but how that music is played is much more about epigenetics and epigenetics is affected by our environment and what we are exposed to and that is what seems to be making these changes so i, I would be i would stay stay clear of blaming like genetics on that it, it's very much a societal issue i think i like this answer a lot um another question here um about menopause is that do you think because they seem those women also seem to be experiencing a little bit more pain you know discomfort and i always thought is there do you think a different response to inflammation in this instance even a trigger in inflammation maybe the threshold of inflammatory process is lowered and therefore smaller stimulus will trigger inflammation yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting question too the, so we know estrogen as a hormone is helpful at lowering stress response so generally speaking um you know when, when women will report that during their cycle when they're at peak estrogen uh fertile days it's great you tend to have better skin you have you're less likely to be suffering from a headache at that time so there's a lot of like anecdotal evidence that when you're your most estrogenic you also feel more relaxed you're generally your stress response is lowered and that is because estrogen itself has that effect so when we have in the menopause when this estrogen just disappears from our lives <laughs> then what can happen is actually inflammation generally inflammation does go up and this the stress of the symptoms is a really you know in itself is adding to that increase in stress and an increased inflammation. And that's why women who are menopausal are much, much higher risk of suffering from inflammatory diseases like cardiovascular disease. Um, there is an association with earlier onset menopause and increased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. So all these pro-inflammatory diseases exacerbate in menopausal women, um, which is why it's so important to try and protect the health of postmenopausal women by counteracting that increased risk that the lack of estrogen basically presents. Um, so yeah, so I think I think that's interesting to hear. But I think there is probably there is likely to be an actual physiological mechanism behind it. Yeah. Which brings me to a, a next question. Of course, is that do is there a link? Have you observed a link between women having, let's say, heavy periods, painful periods, really strong PMS through their life, or through let's say certain periods of their life? and a more difficult or strenuous 
perimenopause and menopause yeah is there a link yeah so i i yes there is and now this is anecdotal as well um, i'm sure there's papers on this actually i would have to go away and read them but uh women who report being more affected by their cycle like their symptoms during their cycle tend to also suffer more with that change in hormones during the perimenopause and in the menopause so yeah those are the women who will often you know suffer more with headaches or they will have a much more severe um hot flashes they will suffer with brain fog as well quite severely and it, it is again as i said it's, it's, it's a similar story to in pregnancy often these women who have more um that suffer more with with menopausal symptoms will have more severe uh, pregnancy symptoms and it's all connected i mean it's how many how many receptors how many estrogen receptors do we all express it's very individual and of course, the more the more you're sensitive to change because of the amount of receptors you're expressing and how the receptors are then communicating with your cells, the more you will rea react to these fluctuations in the hormones. So I guess a big question here is how can I reduce or manage the symptoms? And shall we try and you know, divide a bit this answer into perimenopause first? Because I feel that it's... First of all, it's difficult to even know that you're in perimenopause, you know, you will, because it, it seems when you're a man, and I'm saying this with a lot of immunity here, that it should be rather obvious, right? When if you were, especially if you had a, a cycle that was quite regular, when something becomes irregular, but it just so happens when you're a practitioner that you realize that very regular cycles are actually quite rare, which means that you can't really see of a change when it's already kind of quite erratic in its display so but then your age obviously is a hint right you know that's if you get towards guess we've just said 51 as an average so if you get closer to let's say 46 and onwards you're technically more likely to be in this space of perimenopause so and this how even really my question is that can we be preventative not to the to not to the fact of menopause, but to the to 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 care for the symptoms. Of course. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we can't prevent our, our ovaries running out of eggs. But <laughs> um, but you know, there's there's a couple of interesting points you made there. So the perimenopause, as you said, can be very difficult, uh, different for different people. Um, and one of the first things that people tend to report on is actually a like this brain fog. They they will have maybe they'll have slightly irregular periods, but they'll be like, wow, I really I feel really foggy like I can't remember things and it's it can be quite worrying that can be one of the first symptoms way before any hot flushes or way before any issues with weight gain so that's quite an interesting thing I was reading about today just in preparation for today and I was like oh that's that's interesting so something to look out for yes irregular periods but as you said a lot of women don't have regular periods anyway and with with stress or with with illness you know that can that can change and I think also tracking your cycle has become something that's more popular now, but it hasn't been necessarily. So a lot of women don't know how what their cycle length is, which is interesting because it's such an, in, like it's something we should know about. But uh, so people may not even notice when it starts changing, but there are things that we can do that have uh, been proven again and again, that can really help to reduce the impact of perimenopausal symptoms and of menopausal symptoms. So of just making that change that transition much more manageable so one of the big ones is exercise so keeping active 
is really, really, really helpful. Um, that there's lots of reasons which, you know, that's a different podcast, but physiologically exercise is helpful for reducing cardiovascular risk and obesity risk later down the line, but also helps mental health. It helps with circulation. It helps with regulating hormone levels through reducing cortisol and it, all sorts of increases and decreases on the HPA axis, which help maintain regularity for our, like our sexual hormones. So that's one thing that we know really works. And keeping fit and active in your 40s and 50s as a woman is really, really helpful. The other thing which is very interesting to me is that they've done quite a few uh, trials where they've quite dramatically increased polyphenol intake in women who are perimenopausal and menopausal. And the group- Just explain what polyphenols yeah. are quickly. Sorry. Sorry. So polyphenols are plant chemicals, which typically are colorful. So things that make beetroot colorful or aubergine, plums. So think of like, you know, purples and reds and blues, blueberries. They're just colorful plant chemicals, phytochemicals um, that have a very good anti-inflammatory action on our bodies. And they really help to regulate and dampen the effect of cortisol. And in women who are given like big bursts of polyphenol with herbs and spices, or just literally just here you go, have blueberries every day, they have consistently reported improvement on all of the symptoms, which is really interesting. And I love that story. I mean, blueberries, I love anyway, but let's add add color to your diet through plants and that will be helpful. I've read today, sorry to cut you, that um, I think it was from Mark Heyman actually, who said, it wasn't from him research, but the research was if you add a color to your plate, you're also decreasing your predisposing factors to dementia by 20%. Just saying, you know, that feeling again, it seems that it's this constant, you know, the solution is always, it seems repetitive because, you know, they are the same thing. Eat well, eat diverse, increase your diversity, intake, outtake in your exercise. And it seems that because that's what life is defined. I know, I know. Yeah, when people say like, oh, but, you know, it's so complicated. And I'm like, well, it is in... in it is in the sense that we're understanding more and more detail of why it works. But actually, yes. the message is is actually not that complicated. You know, no. diversity, color, whole plants as much as you can. Avoid things that come in a packet mm. that doesn't look anything like the original food. That's If you could narrow it down, that would really help. So again, another thing that's been shown to be um, helpful in population studies. So when you look across at, you know, big, big, large groups of women and you track their symptoms and what they're eating. So diets diets that follow a Western dietary pattern with lots of ready meals, processed foods, snacks that are sort of prepackaged and foods that are removed from their original form and made into something else. So things like, you know, snack bars or all those sort of foods, they have a much higher reporting of symptom severity. I find this, I find, sorry to cut you again. I find this a bit, um, because, you know, a lot of those, okay, you have Mars bars and lines and bounties and you know this is bad, but you have a lot of those who really claim to be healthy, you know, like a lot of them, those protein bars, the, now there, is, you know, there, there was a big thing about ketos yeah. and keto <laughs> bars, you know, all of them, all of them. And I think, you know, I don't want to blame anyone because I, but I just, and I don't think these people are profoundly malicious and trying to feed us the wrong thing. This is not at all what I'm saying, but I'm wondering, do they genuinely 
think that this is better for us or is it a practicality issue to be able to take it in the bag and walk around with it rather than the fruit, you know, carrying blueberries and kiwis around is it a little bit more messy than carrying a vine wrapped in a good paper. I get this. But, you know, I, I find this sentence really interesting. It says, you know, it's more, it's more harmful to not eat the good things than it is to eat the bad things. Like what, you know, like it's, it's really have to make that kind of effort in a way to be ingesting the good fuel for your body. Absolutely. It's a decision. And, you know, ultra-processed foods now make up up to 65% of our calorie intake. 65%. In children, it's up to 80 Okay, so it's a big problem. How so again? So my question is a bit redundant. So do you think, as a practitioner, yeah. that this is pretty much due to practicality? I think it is. I think that's part of it is practicality, and a big part of it is marketing. So, okay, if you're in the supermarket and you see there's bananas there and there's apples there, but then you see this bar that has pretty packaging and it's marketed to you as high in fiber and you know great source of energy which is a sick banana is as well as we know um but it's designed to attract your attention they're often at the front of the till it's in at the end of the day i i think i'm the same i don't it's not the food industry's fault they are a business they're here to make money and to produce food that we want to consume but i think we have to remember as consumers but as practitioners when we advise our clients is that they are a business trying to sell us a product right so if they're making marketing claims because they need to try and sell a product not because they want to improve our health and i'm sure there's some smaller companies out there that are really trying to make a difference but generally speaking profit margins are the end goal of owning a food company so we're talking here food distribution really because at the end of the day we could just say one thing let's promote farming sure biodynamic farming at least organic farming, go and source there from them, help these people produce the best possible food because they need your money to be able to carry on growing good stuff. Eat it and feel better for it. Yes. Unfortunately, the big budgets aren't behind your no. locally grown organic broccoli. <laughs> so so that's why, but I think that's why we have a big role in educating people that it's not, it's not like you can never eat a keto bar if you want Absolutely. one or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But just making that decision to choose whole foods as often as possible and resorting to the other foods when you don't have the choice of whole foods is, is you know, it's fine. But it, having that balance is really important. And, and studies have shown again and again that having a high consumption of processed foods and ultra processed foods specifically in our diets is really detrimental to our health. Ultra processed foods are typically low in fiber, low in, and low in protein. OK, and those two things are quite essential for good health. So we end up with a product that doesn't actually deliver on nutrition, but it does deliver on empty calories. And calories is not something I ever count or advise on counting. But when you think about the fact that you, there's only so much energy you're going to take in every day, every time you take in energy, it's an opportunity to nourish your body. If you're taking mm -hmm. in empty energy, you're not nourishing your body. And so that's one way of looking at it. And these studies show that those women who consume uh, sort of a more Mediterranean dietary pattern with lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, whole grains, and then occasional oily fish, a little bit of meat if you want to eat meat, but those are really the minor part of the diet. Mm -hmm. They have less severe symptoms of the menopause. They also have less likelihood of developing cardiovascular disease later in life. So women in the menopause are often very worried about breast cancer, which is really a, a horrible cancer. So, you know, 
something to keep an eye on, make sure you're checking yourself. But even a woman who's had breast cancer is more likely to die from a heart attack than they are of the breast cancer. So statistically speaking, statistically speaking, we have to be really mindful of our cardiovascular health. And as women who are entering the perimenopause and menopause, we have to be extra vigilant. And having a plant, like a plant-rich diet with whole grains and very little refined food is really beneficial for that. So it's something that you know we need to, I think, talk about more. Um, and then the other thing that is 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 seems to be very unhelpful for the perimenopause and menopause is alcohol drinking. So excessive alcohol intake really doesn't doesn't help with the menopausal symptoms. Um, and, and actually, it also really doesn't help with breast cancer risk, going back to breast cancer. So that's another thing to, to keep an eye on and to really remember that it's for our own good to try and cut that down. And actually, what you were saying about biodynamic and organic wines, if you're going to enjoy some alcohol occasionally, make it a really good biodynamic organic red wine. And then at least you're having, having a little bit of resveratrol. And also you're helping the planet to get better because well, yeah. those farmers are kind of farming regeneratively. Coming back to menopause and now, you know, I like to kind of really put physical health, mental health and social health all into one because that's what I believe we are and this is how we should look at it. And going through menopause obviously asks many more questions about the future. You know, I'm, I'm changing, it's a sign that it's the end of a chapter of my life. Uh, let's call it motherhood where I can become a mother again, but also it's 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 an interesting change in terms of physiology. We've just mentioned it in terms of a mental I guess, projection as a woman in the, the next chapter of life. And I would like to know what do you think into now we kind of move from, let's say, the very menopause to the menopause itself and then into that switch. How do we support this transition physically, but also mentally? And, and I know that plenty of foods and, and diets, are we going back into the classic exercise and diet and maybe probably meditation and mindfulness and all these things we know will help but to your experience how did you how do you guide those women into that transitional period so it's a good question so there's there are you're, you're completely right i think taking a whole person approach is so important in this and in terms of societal change what i've like what is nice and it's good to see is that now the menopause is being recognized as a transition that needs to be paid attention to. Um, so here in the UK now, they've lowered the price of hormone replacement therapy, which is brilliant to see because it, it was almost like we were punishing women for trying to reduce their their symptoms of something that was very affecting them so much. And so this community sense and this ability now to speak more freely about the menopause and find information on how to cope with the symptoms and what to expect and where you can get in touch with professionals there are now GPs that are specialized in menopause and that's what they do so there's a lot of there's a lot more access to help and information and I think that's really helpful in terms of helping women guide them through this change um one thing that's really worth noting is that through the perimenopause and the menopause there are some changes we can make which can help our bodies to better utilize the estrogen that is still around so um there is a, a specific part of the microbiome called the estrabolome, which actually produces the enzyme, which is necessary for our bodies to free up estrogen back into the circulation. <laughs> so 
now we know this and guess what <laughs> a good diverse fiber rich diet helps to support the astrabolome which is not surprising um but we could, so we there are certain foods that can help support that and by doing that we're, we're not uh some people will need hrt and i think it's very well recognized now that if you go through the menopause early taking hrt is very helpful for better bone health uh better cardiovascular disease prevention up to the age of about 51 which is when you know menopause is average average to take place after that age um hrt can become problematic in terms of increasing risk uh, for certain diseases so when we're thinking about how to support women as you rightly said into the menopause it is around ensuring that their diet is such that protects them against the cardiovascular risk but also against the obesity risk the risk of obesity shoots right up after the menopause so we need to educate women on to how they can appropriately consume food so that they prevent glucose spikes in their blood the the massive glucose spikes is what causes big insulin spikes. And that combination means that you end up storing a lot more fat. Also feel dreadful when you have a big glucose spike, big insulin spike, they generally have a crash that goes hypoglycemic and then you feel awful and you feel tired. All of that, which is quite quite frequent in menopausal women, can be prevented with you know careful planning of what you eat. But without it being, it's not restrictive. It's all about the order in which you eat your foods and how much time you give your body between your dinner and your breakfast is also really helpful for that. So there's a lot of like tricks that you can do to, to make your metabolism work better for you. Yeah, I was going to say, this is the word. I mean, the, the word here is, yeah, the metabolism changes, meaning because I we have a lot of patients like this coming to us and having had a bit of a moment and a bit of a let go, let's say, then suddenly wake up like, I don't like the, the way I look anymore. I don't like the way I feel anymore. I don't like all this and it's not shifting. So I need to do something that, and then they go back into, let's say a gym and go into a bicycle and just go like crazy or start running. I'm not even going to go to all the other issues that comes then from tendinitis and other issues. But the bigger problem here is that they don't lose weight. It seems that their body is in a place, hormonally, but also in terms of their nervous system, in a place that doesn't allow the metabolism to really work into like it did before. You eat, that brings some energy, you store some of it for the needs, but also if you are ex on exertion, you're going to burn that, and therefore you're going to balance it out. But it seems that doesn't work anymore at all. And I think this is where it becomes interesting, saying, listen, you have to think about it more transversely, as we mentioned many times, but also more diversely. And this is the thing that I, we try, not just me, Katie as well, my the co-founder co of Una Series, we try and, and, and really repeat the message of diversity. And I know you do that all the time into how we should intake our food. It should be local if we can, it should be seasonal, it should be as diverse as possible, but it's the same for exercise. And you say to people, look, try and really diversify one day could be some cardio, one day could be some stretching only, one day could be just a walk listening to an amazing podcast, one day could be something a bit more like strength resistance, whatever it is. And you realize, no, but you lose weight, I need to do cardio. That's what I need to do is I need to do cardio. So no, try and diversify. First, you'll prevent injury. You'll get your body moving in so many different ways that you will also help your digestion. Guess what? It's also totally 
helped by movement. So yes, circulation is one thing, but if you do a yoga session, let's say, the bending over and backwards will, in a way, help the mobilization of your gut. And this is what essentially digestion is. It's a movement of food through you. So it's diversity, again, about how you can imagine you relating to the outside world as much as you relating to what you put inside that will help i think all of it yes and i think you're right we're three we're 360 we're three-dimensional beings so this idea that you can move in one way so like just spinning or just running that's not going to nurture your three-dimensional being like you have to move in different ways different angles and especially as we get older strength in our backs and our shoulders is so important for maintaining posture after a whole life of sitting, <laughs> a lot of us sit a lot, um, making sure that you move your body in all directions is so, so helpful. So I, I completely agree with that. But with, with the diet, what's interesting is, you know, with age, especially, your metabolism does change. And what you what you eat has a much bigger impact on your weight than how you move. As long as you're moving, you've got to keep moving. But actually, what you're eating, what you're consuming will dictate whether or not you will lose weight or not. So I have clients who come to me and they say, oh, you know, I train four times a week with a PT and I walk like five miles a day and I'm still not losing weight. And it's like, that's wonderful that you're moving, but if you want to change your weight or, or rather your adiposity. So if you want to change the shape of your body, which is often the big change women notice after the menopause is this weight gain around their mid midriff, which we all know is also associated with cardiovascular risk. That is so related to diet and it's very related to stress as well. So the two are super interlinked. When we look at um, disease states like Cushing's disease, where there is a massive high, high, high level of cortisol, you see this abdominal weight, like uh, weight gain. Or on people on cortisone, you know, chronic medication, you know, everywhere they kind of- That's exactly it. So that they have, you know, they put on weight on their face and their midriff and that, is the same if you have consistently high cortisol levels in your blood because you're very stressed and you don't have practices such as meditation or mindful movement or breath work, whatever way people choose to do that, if you don't have that to help regulate your stress levels, you won't lose that weight because your body is in panic mode. And the last thing your body does when you're in panic mode is not store energy because <laughs> you might have to run away from a lion that's not there, okay? So I think that we have to bear that in mind a little bit as well, as well as exercise. That's, that's really touching on something that I love speaking about, which is the polyvagal theory, which is understanding that in our autonomic nervous system, we have the ventral branch, which is our social engagement state. Then we go down a layer into thoracic sympathetic chain, which is the fight or flight response. But we also have a dorsal branch of the vagus nerve, and this is the kind of withdrawal. This is when, if we were to fight that lion you mentioned, and we are actually, we're losing, we're about to die. It's the shutdown mode. And when you're in those two modes here, not that you can, you're never really stuck in there unless you really have a serious trauma. You can still, I guess, oscillate. So there's a bit of flexibility there, but this is your predisposing kind of system. There's no way you'll be able to change your metabolism. So that's also something that we focus on to try and bring you back into an anterior, it's called ventral branch, socially socially engaged. And then suddenly metabolism kind of totally shifts down. It's fascinating. And you see it very quickly 
when people are stuck because obviously it's all cognitive now most of the time it's rare that we are actually in front of a line so those stressors that will make us go a bit I, I say back because anatomically it's back but interestingly enough in the brain it's more inwards because you're going to towards your reptilian brain which is your amygdala this is where you're going to have the connection with the dorsal branch of the vagus nerve and the more you come out towards the cortex eventually the neocortex in, in your frontal lobes that's where you're really into this the essence of the sapiens it's social engagement connection which is what makes our strength really as a species more than anything else two questions for you about menopause that come back again sorry i'm that's just going okay. i love the vagus nerve we could do a whole other podcast Oh my god! I did I did my thesis did on it. I'm literally it's my it's a, it's literally a passion. Um, if that could be a passion, but mushrooms. Okay, everyone now, which is great, has watched Fantastic Fungi. If you haven't watched it, go and watch it. Paul Stamets is a, a really funny genius. Um, but what I mean by that again, we're coming to back to marketing, and you see a lot of advert now for. Lion's Mane, for example, for the peace of mind. You see a lot of those coffee made out of fungies and stuff. And, you know, the, the whole fungi world has just suddenly is taking over. For, and should be, right? The mycelia, the connectivity between the trees and all the living species. It's extraordinary. So please go and watch that if you haven't. And even do more research into mushrooms. It is fascinating. But coming back to those that we can eat and those fungi that are part of on us and inside us. Um, any tips, any input on fungi and menopause? No, no, no. Fungi are actually amazing. And so that they're, they're sort of in, in the spotlight right now. They have neurotropic uh, properties so that they're believed to help with cognitive performance. They're believed to help with even neurogenesis, which is super exciting. It's quite a new area of research. There isn't like a load of clinical trial data, but it's all pointing in the right direction and nobody denies that there is there are things about mushrooms that make them special even compared to other plants there's no doubt and they're not plants they're their own thing right so they are definitely special um so in terms of eating mushrooms they are one of they're one of the only things that people don't eat every day and they really should so mushrooms are something that consumed every day adds such a host of benefits both in the specific polyphenols that only mushrooms contain. So whereas a lot of polyphenols can be found in lots of different types of berries or lots of different types of herbs, there are specific polyphenols and specific carbohydrate compounds that are only found in mushrooms that have been shown to be super beneficial to human health and they should be consumed every day. Like there's no other way of saying it. It doesn't matter which mushrooms you like. There are certain mushrooms that have been put through more testing than others. So for example, porcini mushrooms have had quite a lot of trial data on them, and they are really beneficial to health. If you don't, if you don't want porcini, get chestnut. It doesn't matter. But mushrooms are great, and everyone should eat more of them. They contain vitamin D. They're one of the only sources of vitamin D in food. Um, they are super easy to grow. Their environmental impact is low. I mean, they are a wonderful food. So I would say, if you don't already eat mushrooms every day please do you can buy and and what's amazing about mushrooms is if you freeze them or dry them they still retain their nutritional content so you can buy whatever mushroom you want <laughs> and now i would say you don't need to buy mushroom tea you don't need to buy mushroom hot chocolate i don't think that that's necessary if you'd like to and you because that's the that's where the marketing is going right now I, I keep getting it in my instagram to have this better than coffee and i know i mean like 
I know there is there there are really good kind of mushrooms that you can use to make similar energetic morning um, beverages. You don't need to do that. You can just add mushrooms to your meal. Now there are specific there are specific mushrooms that have actually been turkey tail mushroom has been included in randomized clinical trials for breast cancer and has improved outcome. So there's some some of the research that's happening. It's very new. It's I think I the first kind of proper trials are from 2019, so it's still very recent. But real results. It's so exciting. So I'm really excited to see where it goes. But for now, I would say pop mushrooms into your diet like start straight away I, I love mushrooms love them start now and please carry on that and for the menopause we've talked about the importance of fiber for the estrabolome mushrooms provide that we've talked about the importance of polyphenol for reducing symptoms guess what mushrooms provide that so if, if you like a mushroom add it in and you feel better there's no doubt my second thing so i have two more questions for you and then we can uh, that there will be plenty um we're coming back to an inflammation at the very beginning of, of this podcast we spoke about inflammation and you and I have a conversation uh, about the link between inflammation and basically all the immune system that is along the epithelial barrier in our gut. So just quickly for people to remember, because this is something that I want people to listen to and hear and just try and because every time I read it or someone tells me, it literally baffles me. The biggest barrier between the outside world and us is this barrier from our sinuses all the way through to the end and it's the size of two tennis courts whereas our skin which we think is our biggest exposition to the outside world is only 1.8 meters square so it's vast and it's only one layer of cells which is technically half a hair and that thing is meant to be protecting you from everything that you eat that you breathe that comes in that could potentially be, be a pathogen and just do something bad to you hence why there's so much of your immune system we say sometimes 60 percent up to 80 percent of its activity just there but therefore in terms of evolution we have all this commands all these bacteria the microbiome that we like to talk about as well together always here and if you feed it well guess what fiber <laughs> go back to this he will provide you back with some short-chain fatty acid, which will modulate to activate your immune system. So that's the basis. Now, we have those menopausal women. Their physiology is changing. Their metabolism is changing. They are finding it, let's say, just simply more difficult. Things that happened before just don't happen again. When they eat just a tiny bit of the things that they used to abuse a bit, it has a huge effect on them. Their social life has changed. They feel less happy in their bodies. They feel less happy in their sexual life. They feel, you know, all of this come together. And we realize that on top of it, there can be in more pain or discomfort linked to this inflammation. So what I want to, in a way, wrap this up with is the fact that this inflammation state that seems to be more inclined to be triggered at that in this particular time and period can be prevented or managed with all the things that you've advised us today, mostly polyphenols. You, you say, you know better. Tell me the things that we can do to try and keep this at bay, keep feed our microbiome nicely, protect or empower our immune system and, and therefore the whole body and its physiology. So it's nice because I'm going to wrap everything we've talked about now. So what's, what's brilliant is that if we can focus I like to think of plate building. So if we can focus our every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, restaurant, home, doesn't matter. Start with vegetables. So start with 
whether it's the steamed spinach or it is some broccoli or some avocado, it doesn't matter. Start with vegetables. Try and dress your vegetables with extra virgin olive oil and either a little lemon or some uh, apple cider vinegar. Very simple, okay? Start that, start with that. Then have fermented foods, have some sauerkraut, some kimchi, maybe some kefir. Maybe you make your own fermented yogurt at home. Maybe you like to drink kombucha. Try and have that every day. I'm not saying every meal that's quite difficult to, to do, but try and have it every day. You have your prebiotic fibers in the plants that you're eating. You have your probiotics in the fermented foods. Then you can have your whole grains. And you, there's lots of other beneficial um, com components of that. And you can have some meat or some fish if you eat that. Please try and make it responsibly sourced, make it sustainable. Because actually the meat that we eat makes a big difference to, to us and to the planet. And if a cow has been living its life outside and eating grass and it's happy, the meat will be completely different in terms of its components, omega-3, polyphenols, than a cow that hasn't had any of that exposure, okay? So high quality meat, very, very rarely. And then you can have some uh, dairy or dairy alternatives, again, very mindfully. When you build your plate in that way, starting with the nuts, the seeds, the vegetables, the mushrooms, the pulses and the beans and the lentils, and the other things come after, you'll be full up, you'll be happy. There's so much to choose from. And True. by having prebiotics and probiotics in your diet, you will have a healthy, diverse microbiome. Now, the microbiome does have bad strains too. And those bad strains are, will be outpopulated by the good strains with this kind of diet. And what's really good is that when you have a healthy microbiome with plenty of prebiotic fibers, the result is lots of helpful postbiotics. What you touched on, the short-chain fatty acids, butyrate is the most famous. Butyrate is what keeps that single cell thick lining healthy and stops it from breaking, stops toxins and pathogens going in, okay? Yeah, leaky gut is a sort of popular term. It's not really scientific, but that kind of thing. So those postbiotics aren't just butyrate. There's short-chain fatty acids, there's enzymes, there's hormones. And guess where they go? Up the vagus nerve. 80% of vagal nerve traffic is from the gut to the brain. It is not from the brain to the gut. No, our gut is telling our brain what's going on with ourselves. Right? So you know this. And Correct. what's really amazing is that when that goes up and it's happy postbiotics and it's telling us that everything is cool outside, we've got some good food, there's lots of access to, to what we need and our microbiome is happy, then our body gets that message and the brain can then say, okay, guys, we're all good. You can create, you can release the estrogen, release the progesterone, release the sex hormones, because we're going to reproduce because it's all safe out there. And it'll give the message <laughs> to the body that everything is good. We don't That's need to stress right. it. Let's bring the cortisol levels down. There are no lions around. We can digest our food and absorb. We can get rid of what we don't need. We don't need to store energy. We're not going to have to run through the savannah from this lion anytime soon so we can stop storing fat. <laughs> so there's, it's all connected. And then adding in movement 100%. and mindful breathing, as you said, the vagus nerve has a big thoracic portal. When we do deep breath work, that feeds back to the brain and says, okay, we can relax. And all of those things together <laughs> work to create a very healthy balance for our bodies to thrive instead of survive, which is what happens when we're in dysbiosis and we're under stress. So I think, Hopefully, <laughs> I finished it. <laughs> Good, I like it. This was a beautiful conclusion. So this is what we need to share with our 
not just menopausal or pre perimenopausal women and patients and, and from Una series, we need to share this with everyone because this is the thing is that we like, and I, I know you, you follow me on this, you know, we like to specialize and focus and cut and, and examine that little bit or that little bit. But we realize that we really need to be able to do what you've just done now, which is step back, look at it in a whole and understand, you know, for me, it's fascinating. Imagine I learned that, for example, the autonomic nervous system was just of two kinds, parasympathetic, sympathetic, and that was it. There was two modes and it could be on or off. It was just, and this is just in my lifetime. I, mean, I learned this in my early 20s. I'm only 41 now. And the research has changed in such a way that now we are describing five different tastes, um, states rather in the in the automatic nervous system and not just that i was also because i taught that you know i was i was taught it but then i was teaching <laughs> teaching it to people and i realized that this was it wasn't wrong because I, that's what i knew but it, there was such a big piece missing and we kind of knew it all at the time because it, it the whole thing didn't make sense but now this is interesting information the vagus nerve even when i was doing my thesis on it we said it was half and half afferent and efferent meaning there was roughly half information going down one way and the half and then realizes it's not actually 60%, 70%, 80%. Now it keeps increasing. Just realize that now it's basically just, uh, and it's called afferent fibers coming in. And as you said, this is neuroception, which is another podcast in itself. How do we perceive the world and then filter it, process it, and then take action. That was amazing. We have to finish it. We'll have to do more. How many podcasts can we <laughs> yeah, do? People with get the bored same of me. You'll just have to. Maybe I should. Like, okay, we'll switch. No, but it's been it's been so nice. <laughs> I really doubt it. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Federica. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all this incredible knowledge. But also, not just that. Thank you for your capacity of integration, because this is what. I'm trying to do, we are trying to do, and this is what we need to then be able to deliver for people to, to understand because this introspective journey is through integration, getting all this information, all the things you know, and putting it together, and you do this absolutely marvelously. So yes, thank you. And, and seeing people as whole people that move and breathe and eat. <laughs> absolutely. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful Una series podcast. Please uh, go and check the other podcast we've done with Federica on the vaginal microbiome, which is also fascinating. And maybe there'll be another one one day. <laughs> and uh, go and check all the other podcasts. We're trying our best to bring this information together, bring this information to you so you can enjoy it at first, learn with us, but also come back to us and tell us what you think and what you've learned and what you need. And we'll go and try and look for it and find it for you. Thank you so much, Federica. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>